I want to see him saved too. How about you? God saves. Saves sinners. The power of the gospel. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew 12. While you're turning there, I want to tell you a little story about a, um, a man that I know who uh, many years ago in a very defiant, a very um, brazen, very arrogant sort of way defied God to prove his existence to him by striking him down. And in his mercy uh, and gentleness, God did that, not killing him as his wickedness deserved, but crushing him nonetheless and bringing him to the end of himself so that he might come to see and understand the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ Embracing it by faith and becoming a child of God and someday a pastor in God's church because that man is me. As a young man, I was guilty of the sin of blasphemy. I blasphemed the creator of the universe. Blasphemy is a very serious sin, a very serious sin. It demonstrates itself by defaming, reviling, denouncing, rejecting, and railing against the God of creation. It is um, frequently the result of a hardened unbelief and and a defiant irreverence toward God. In the Old Testament, the penalty for blasphemy was stoning, death by stoning. It is a very, very serious sin. And wicked as it is, not all blasphemy is the same. Some blasphemy can be forgiven and indeed is forgiven in Christ. I stand before you this morning, a blasphemer who has been forgiven by Christ. I'm not alone. The Apostle Paul was a blasphemer himself, a former Pharisee who blasphemed God, and yet God extended mercy to him, and in Paul's own words, He was shown mercy by God because he acted in ignorant unbelief. That is that Paul thought he was doing God's will at the very time he was blaspheming God. Paul says it this way in 1 Timothy 1, verses 12 and 13. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me Because he considered me faithful, putting me into service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. Yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. Some blasphemy is 
forgivable in Christ. And I praise God for that because many of us are guilty, aren't we? But there is a blasphemy that was not forgiven. Not in this life, nor in the life to come. Never forgiven. An unforgivable sin. And that is so heavy to think about. And yet we must, we are forced to contemplate it this morning. In Matthew chapter 12, Matthew recounts for us a a blasphemy by a group of scribes and Pharisees that was so wicked, so dark, so depraved, revealed such profound hardness of heart that there was no forgiveness available. The events of the day here in chapter 12 and beginning in verse 22, we spoke of this last week, what we call the busy day, and that indeed is what it was. The events of the day sort of frame the the context in which this blasphemy occurred. Called the busy day, Jesus was being pressed ministerially. Mark tells us in Mark chapter 3 and verse 20 that that the demands on him were so severe that day that, that he could not even get away to have something to eat. That the people were crowding him in his house there in Capernaum and just clamoring for him to perform miracles and and to take care of their needs. And there was not even a moment to rest or eat. It was so severe that we're told again in Mark that his family thought he was losing touch with reality. That he was caught up in some sort of religious ecstasy. And, and so they came to save him from himself. They, they thought he was losing touch with reality. And they were going to, to take him away by, by restraint if necessary. In order to protect him from himself. Gives you just a picture of the, of the kind of pressure he was feeling at that time. And if that were not enough. It was at this moment when the the murmurings and and unbelief of the religious leadership there in Galilee, the, the, the Pharisees, burst open and they made their first public accusation of him, of him performing his his ministry, doing what he did in the power of Satan himself. Matthew's Gospel records two other incidents in chapter 9, verse 34, chapter 10, verse 25, where where they speak about Jesus and accuse him of doing things by the power of Beelzebub. But, But those are later events chronologically. This event here chronologically in the life of Christ is the first time it becomes open, an open accusation. The result of this day is that Jesus has a significant change in ministry focus. He begins to minister in a very, very different way from this point forward in the rest of his public ministry. He begins the ministry of parables. Matthew pulls them together for us in in chapter 13. And it it is here in these 
parables that, that Jesus begins to, to speak in a, in a different kind of way for the crowds. He speaks in a way that, that obscures the truth for some and, and reveals it for others. But his, but his open, unambiguous proclamation ceases from this point forward. There were many, many events that day, to be sure. But from a historical and theological standpoint, the central event of the day, and we might say the central event in the, in the public uh, life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ happens this day when, when the Pharisees and the scribes openly accuse him of doing what he does and the power of the evil one. This is the unforgivable sin. This is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. So as we go through the section together, and I, we started it last week to be sure, but we said from an outline point of view, we're just going to look at four words. We're just going to use four words as a, as a, as a kind of a series of hooks to hang our thoughts on as we go through this section together. And, they, and the words kind of summarize the flow of the narrative as we proceed. So the first word is the word accusation. It begins here in verse 22. Follow along as I read. Then, and the then is, you know, Jesus in the home, right? He, he can't get a moment to himself. He can't even eat. He's being pressed in every direction. His family thinks he's losing it. They're coming to try to take him away. Then, at that time, a demon-possessed man was who was blind and mute, was brought to Jesus, and he healed him so that the mute man spoke and saw. All the crowds were amazed. And they were saying, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, this man casts out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. It's an amazing miracle. That's what Matthew tells us. An amazing miracle performed in, in front of a crowd who had become used to amazing miracles. This happens here in Capernaum. This is where Jesus had his base of operations. This is where he conducted his, the, his great Galilean ministry from. He spent 18 months in and around this area of northern Israel, performing healing after healing, miracle after miracle, teaching and preaching among the people so that they came from all over in order to experience his healing touch. And yet now he heals this man in such a way that the crowds are stunned. Stunned. This man is demon-possessed. His demon possession has, has resulted in his inability to speak and his inability to see. Matthew doesn't really focus on the miracle. He doesn't tell us how Jesus did this. He, he cast out the demon. And, and in the, by casting him out, the man's sight and the man's ability to speak has been restored to him. And the crowds are, are just blown away by what they see. But they're not blown away in faith. In fact, just the opposite. 
They have been, they have been confronted now with, with an unimpeachable uh, set of circumstances, evidence that clearly and directly points to the reality that Jesus is the Son of David, Messiah, King of Israel. There's no question about it. It is a full display of the power prophesied by Isaiah in Isaiah 35. And they don't want to believe it. They don't really want to believe it. And so they ask, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? They, they phrase the question in such a way that, that, that they want help in, in evading the, the, the dilemma that they find themselves in. And that is that it is an incontrovertible evidence in front of their eyes as to who he really is, but they don't want to believe it in their hearts. So they're saying, help us out. Get us off the hook. Give us something so that we can reject what our eyes have seen and what the Scripture clearly tells us we must believe. The Pharisees sense this spirit. They sense their opportunity. They're like sharks circling. There's blood now in the water, and they just move in for the attack. So they make what what is really kind of an astounding sort of of uh, accusation against him. What they say is, is publicly that he is in league with the devil. No, he's not the son of David. Yes, he's done a, a miracle. We're not going to debate that. We're going to tell you he did the miracle. The power to do the miracle came from the devil. Came from the devil. First time. First time it's become public now. Jesus cannot let this one lie. This is not one to turn the other cheek on. He must respond, and he does. And so he refutes them, beginning in verse 25, 25 to 29, refutation. And he does it in, a, in really in three steps, and quickly through those steps, verses 25 and, and 26, he responds and he says, your, your charge against me, your accusation against me is illogical. It's illogical. And knowing their thoughts, 25, Jesus said to them, any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And any city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? Yeah, I mean, it's just simple. Everybody knows that. If 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 Satan is casting out demons, then, then Satan's house is divided against itself. He's using his own power to, to destroy himself. He's, he's rescuing people from his own kingdom. It's illogical. It's illogical. Secondly, the charge is prejudicial. It is prejudicial. Verse 27, Jesus says, but if I, by Beelzebub, cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? For this reason, they will be your judges. In effect, what Jesus says is, we've got a double standard going on here. There's a double standard here. You, you Pharisees, you have your disciples, your, your sons of the faith, and, and they claim that they do exorcisms, and yet you do not accuse them of being in league with the devil. You don't, you don't assume that their power comes from the devil. 
when they supposedly drive out demons. So what's going on here? What is it about me that forces you to a conclusion that I am operating by the power of Satan? Answer? It's your, it's your prejudice. It's your preconceived notion about me. You have already decided that you will not obey. You will not follow. And so you have forced yourself into this box. Third. Third step of his refutation. The, the miracle itself is evidential. The charge of the accusation is illogical. The charge is prejudicial. And the miracle itself is evidential. Verses 28-29. But, but if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can anyone enter the strong man's house and, and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man? And then he will plunder his house. All right, it, it, the, the logic of it works this way. God is stronger than, than Satan. And if I do not cast out demons by, by Satan, and I've already shown you that that accusation is foolish, then I must do it by God. I must be doing it by the power of God. And if I'm doing it by the power of God, then I am sent from God. Therefore, what I say is truthful. I speak for God. And if that's so, then, then what that means is that the kingdom of God really has come upon you. The king is, is standing in your midst, just as I have insisted. I have, I have demonstrated for you the, the very power necessary to loot the strong man's house. The strong man, of course, being Satan. In this context. This miracle is all the evidence you need. You have seen it. The kingdom of God has, has burst in. And yet you will not receive it. That takes us to the third word for this morning. And the word is condemnation. Condemnation. We have the accusation in verses 22 to 24. We have the refutation in verses 25 and through 29. Now we arrive at the condemnation. This is the, this is the, the hinge pin. This is the turning point. It's the turning point in this confrontation. And this confrontation is the turning point in the gospel. Indeed, it is the turning point in world history. It comes to play here. This is a big event. Big event. Condemnation. Jesus says to them that the, that the issues involved here are, are of such magnitude, such importance. Their, their charges are so serious that there can be no middle ground. This is it. This is the fulcrum. There's the, we don't walk away from this one. We can't, we can't part and come back another day. We can't agree to disagree on this matter. This is it. It is of such magnitude. There is no middle ground here. This, this is the watershed. 
This is the continental divide. It falls in one direction or the other. You are on the fence. And you will go one way or you will go the other. You cannot sit on the fence. In fact, what Jesus is going to say here is to to remain undecided as to the source of Jesus' power is actually to choose to oppose him. He takes the middle ground away here. You cannot remain neutral. There is no such thing. You can't say, well, gee, it looks kind of good, but, you know, then they've got this point over here, and I just need some more time to think about it and whatever. And Jesus says, no. No. You're with me or you are against me. You are openly gathering with me or you are scattering. Right? Verse 30. He who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters. This is actually a a proverbial kind of statement. It's kind of a proverb here. And it's drawn uh, from the whole issue of tending sheep. The whole gathering, scattering here is is talking about sheep, not not, uh, planting. And what Jesus is saying here is you are either, either gathering in the sheep with me or you are scattering the sheep. What you cannot do is sit in your chair on the side and watch. One or the other. You're in or you're out. He's calling for decision. Jesus has just demonstrated his power. How can he do this? He's just demonstrated his power. Right? He has demonstrated the power over the strong man, verse 29. He has has bound the strong man. He has has looted his his domicile, his kingdom, by delivering this demon-possessed man in in such an amazing, spectacular, unimpeachable kind of way. So the strong man, or or rather the the one who has um, bound and conquered the strong man, is standing before you. Standing right here, he's basically saying. I'm in your midst. Therefore, it is, it is morally impossible to remain on the fence. See, really what we're, what we're going to be dealing with here is, is a moral question. This is not a question of, of intellect. This is not a question of evidence. This is not a question of argumentation. This is a question of morality. And beloved, uh, unbelief is always, ultimately, a question of morality. Always a question of morality. Unbelief, at its core, stems not from a lack of information, but from a lack of will to believe that which is plain. And that's the issue here. And what Jesus says is, is you cannot, and I think he's basically talking to the crowds here, you cannot continue to withhold judgment you have now been brought to this place. You know, the gospel is, is, uh, is good news, right? That's what the word means. Good, gospel means good news. It is good news. It's how, it's how man can be reconciled back to his creator. It's the best news. It's, it's the only news. But there's a bad news component. And the bad news component to it is that if you reject this, there isn't anything else. Available to you. 
There's no other way. There's no second, you know, plan B, you know, behind door number two. There's only door number one. The people have to answer their question. That's what he's pushing them to. Right? Go back to verse 23. This man cannot be the son of David. Can he? And Jesus is saying, you must answer your own question. And you must answer it in the affirmative. Yes, this is the son of David. This is the king of Israel. This is the Messiah sent of God. This is the one who will bring us back to God. They must join with him. They must follow him. They must become his disciples in the the fullest sense of the word. No more tasting, no more nibbling. No more, you know, go walking through Costco, a little of this, a little of that. You know, it's time to buy the product. This is serious stuff. This is serious stuff. You know how we want to carve out the middle ground, right? Just kind of, you know, wallow around in the middle ground. I'm not, I'm not ir- really irreligious, and I'm not really, I'm agnostic. You know? I'm ignorant, which is what the word means. No, you're not agnostic. You're in or you're out. You're either with me or you're against me. You're either gathering with me or you are scattering the people. You're on the side of the Pharisees. They are, they are scattering the sheep. Makes me think of Ezekiel 34 and the, and the wicked shepherds of Israel that are prophesied against there. You're either gathering or, or you are scattering those sheep to the wolves in every direction. Actively scattering. Verse 31, therefore, therefore, we see the word therefore, we know that there is a, there is a summary statement, right? There's a conclusion being drawn from, from that which has preceded. We see a therefore, we ask, what's it therefore? Well, it's, it's pointing to something. Jesus is about to draw a conclusion. He's going to sharpen the point here. Therefore. Therefore, in in light of the fact that if you are not with me, then you are against me. In light of the fact that that if you are not gathering with me, then you you are scattering with me. Therefore, in light of that, I say to you, the most dreadful words. I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him either in this age or in the age to come. 
I don't think there's a, a heavier condemnation to be found anywhere in the Scriptures. What's it mean? What does it mean? It means this. When Jesus stepped into space and time, when he took to himself human flesh, the pre-existent, eternally existing second person of the triune Godhead, the, the Son of the Father, stepped into space and time, and, and he incarnated himself in human flesh, and he, and he voluntarily gave up the independent exercise of his divine attributes, humbling himself and living as a, as a perfect human being in full and entire dependence upon the Spirit of God. The doctrine of the Incarnation. Choosing to live with a man as a man. Choosing to live in dependence upon the Spirit of God. Entirely dependent. The Spirit would guide him. The Spirit would empower him. The the Spirit would enable him to resist temptation and overcome evil. In every complete and full sense, human. And then, to have the religious leadership of Israel Attribute the work of the Spirit of God to the evil one is a blasphemy so wicked it cannot be forgiven. Beloved, Jesus lived in dependence on the Spirit of God. This is such an important understanding of the Gospels and the Christian life. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. Let's be refreshed. Philippians chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. Contest, we're talking about Christ there, verse 5. He, that is Jesus, emptied himself. Second person of the triune Godhead. He emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, of a slave, and being made in the likeness of men. That's what it means to empty himself. It's to be made in the likeness of men. Take the form of a slave. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. By becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He humbled himself. He lived in entire dependence upon the Spirit of God to perform the will of the Father. I came not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me, he says. This is the the mystery of the incarnation. This is the glory of the incarnation. Turn back with me to Matthew 12 and let me just remind you that this is very much the issue here. It is right here in this context. 
Philippians 2, 7 and 8, it, it talks about the reality of the incarnation. Spoken of in a little bit different way here, where in Matthew chapter 12 and, and verse 18, pick it up in 17, this was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet, Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him. A direct quote out of Isaiah chapter 42 and verse 1, the first of the great servant songs of Isaiah's prophecy. The Messiah living and ministering in full dependence on the Spirit of God. Matthew says, this is the one. This is the one. This is the one whom Isaiah wrote of. The one upon whom the Spirit of God dwells. Luke chapter 4. Verse 14. Following his temptation in the wilderness in which he bested Satan in all of these temptations. How? By walking in the power of the Spirit of God and and recalling to his own mind and believing and acting upon the Word of God. Because that's how the Spirit of God works in his people. It's the Spirit of God uses his Word, the Word of God, to save and to sanctify his people. Verse 14. And Jesus returned to Galilee. Check it out. In the power of the Spirit. And the news about him was spread throughout all the surrounding district. And he was teaching in their synagogues and was was praised by all. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up as was his custom. And he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and he stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he, Jesus, opened the book and found the place where it was written. I mean, the Isaiah scroll is huge. (laughs) 66 chapters, right? You know. And rolls that rascal. No chapter markings and no verse markings, by the way, in those days. Which just speaks about how well Jesus knew Isaiah's prophecies, huh? To find the place where it is written. Verse 18. Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. And on he goes. And then he closes the book, verse 20, and hands it back. The Spirit is upon me. Back to Matthew 12. Jesus did a lot of miracles. Is that right? During his great Galilean ministry, all kinds of miracles. Our time we spent in Israel, it was so amazing. You got to see a Galilee, right? Shaped sort of like a pear. Wider at the top, narrow at the bottom. Right up at the top is the city of Capernaum. The city of Capernaum is a, is a key city because it sits on the, on the border between two kingdoms. When Herod the Great died, his his kingdom was divided among his sons. Herod Antipas had west of the Jordan. 
basically. And, and Philip head to the east. And Capernaum sits right there. And so you have trade moving back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And it has to go through Capernaum. And when it goes through Capernaum, it has to go by the office of a certain tax collector who happened to be named Levi, or as we know him, Matthew. And you can get incredibly rich, by the way, taxing the caravan traffic back and forth. You know what I'm saying? You do pretty good for yourself. And so you have international travel back and forth, back and forth. Jesus moves from Nazareth up on the ridge where nobody comes, right? Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? He moves to Capernaum, the key place, where he can affect not only Galilee, but the empires of the world as they move back and forth. A little bit to the south and to the west. You have the plain of Gennesaret, a, a, a wide open flat area of, of, of unparalleled fertility. And it is there in the time of the New Testament where there was a massive population. And this is where Jesus spends his time. This is where he does his miracles. And he does so many miracles that the, that the people, and they hear about it from the caravan traffic, and they're coming from all over, and everyone who comes, he heals. He doesn't turn anybody away. It doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter whether they even believe or not. He heals them. Why? Why? Because they are the direct attestation of his message that the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God, when it breaks into human history, will be a time of unprecedented prosperity. A time in which sickness and will, will be banished, in which evil will be severely suppressed, in which the earth will begin to blossom and look much more like what the Garden of Eden once looked like. It's, it's the longing of the human heart. And the prophets were very clear as to what we should be looking for. What the Jews should look for when their kingdom comes. And Jesus gave it to them. And he gave it to them far and wide. Far and wide. And they directly attested to his person. And they directly attested to his power, not his personal power, the power of the Spirit of God. The Spirit rests on me, he says. I do what I do by the power of the Spirit of God. Now, by the way, in the, in the, uh, in the Greek New Testament, the vast majority of times, when it says, uh, you know, we translate it, Holy Spirit, is actually... The Spirit, the Holy One. The Spirit, the Holy One. Which Spirit? There are lots of spirits in the world. Which Spirit do you do this by? The Spirit, the Holy One. And so here we have the religious leadership of Israel. Those that have immersed themselves in the study of the word of God. They don't do anything else but study the Bible. The teachers of Israel. 
And when confronted with, with absolutely irrefutable evidence of who this man is, what do they do? But knowingly, actively, unwaveringly, they attribute the power behind the miracles to Satan. To Satan. Beloved, what that means is, in effect, is they are are calling the third person of the triune Godhead Satan. Not the spirit, the Holy One, the spirit, the evil one. The prince of demons. They have identified the spirit of God with Satan, the devil. Mark chapter 3, verse 30. Parallel accounting up there. I got it for you. They were saying he has, what? An unclean spirit? No, he doesn't have an unclean spirit. He is empowered and indwelt by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. And unless they immediately repent and renounce this wickedness, they will cut themselves off from all hope of forgiveness, both now and eternally. Verse 33. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. The idea of make is is to consider it to be. Consider the tree good and its fruit good. Consider the tree bad and its fruit bad. You cannot have a mixture of the two. Jesus is putting it to them, to the Pharisees and to the crowds. You cannot have it both ways. If the healing is good, then the tree that produces the healing, that is Jesus, is also good. He is from God. But... If the tree is bad, if he is really from Satan, if he's been empowered by the prince of darkness, then you must say that the fruit of that tree, which is the the exorcism and healing of this man, is also bad and evil. And that's something they just cannot do. They cannot do. It kind of reminds me of a of a boxing match. You know, in a, in, a, in a heavyweight boxing match, you know, they sort of, they cut the ring. That means that they continue to try to force their opponent back into the corner. They want to they take away the middle. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing here. He, he, is, he is cutting the ring. He is, he is forcing them back into a corner in which there is no way out. You must repent. That is it. That's the way out. Their fate is hanging in the balance right now. Hanging in the balance. They either reject their stubborn wickedness that they've been clinging to, their hardness of heart, or they will cut themselves off from the kingdom of God permanently. Permanently. Because they are knowingly, actively, wickedly opposing the truth calling the third person of the Godhead Satan himself. 
The sad reality is they don't pull back. They don't pull back. Matthew 13, and we'll get there in a little while here, but verse 14, it says, In their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says you will keep on hearing but will not understand. You will keep on seeing but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull. With their ears they scarcely hear. They have closed their eyes. Otherwise they would see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their heart and return, and I would heal them. The sad reality, beloved, of all of this is that the crowds choose to follow their leadership into the abyss. Like the herd of swine over the hill. Destroyed. Destroyed. Notice verse 39. He answered and said to them, an evil and adulterous generation. Verse 41, the men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation. Verse 42, the queen of the south will rise up with this generation. Verse 45, he goes along and he takes other more wicked spirits and the the last state of that man is worse than the first. This is the way it also will be with this evil generation. There is something going on here that is, that is unique to its historical circumstances. They have witnessed the miracle with their own eyes. And knowingly, willingly, wickedly, they have attributed it to the power of the evil one. This generation. Peter will later say at Pentecost, Acts chapter 2 and verse 40, Be saved from this perverse generation. The writer of the Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 4 will say it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. They have tasted the kingdom of God and refused it. So we said last week there are a lot of people that are they're very concerned that maybe somehow they've, they've committed this unpardonable sin, this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. But they have not. This is a very unique Circumstance that occurred there that day in Galilee. Accusation, refutation, condemnation, fourth, explanation, explanation. The Pharisees had deliberately, the Pharisees had willingly chosen to attribute the work of the Spirit of God in the ministry of Messiah to the evil one. Why? Why did they do that? Why? And the answer to the question is, a, is an illustration of really the gradual process of sin. In their continued rejection of, of, the, of the truth that was before their eyes, they hardened their heart and hardened their heart and hardened their heart and hardened their heart until their heart was so hard they were completely given over to evil. This is the 
the terrible sin of apostasy. Apostasy. Verse 34, why did you do this? You brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. This venomous slander that says that, I, that the work that I do that is clearly the work of the, of the Spirit, the Holy One of God, the contrary to all evidence, you are attributing to the evil one. Your heart has been filled with evil and filled with corruption. It's impossible now for you to respond in any way other than evil. Good man brings out of his good treasure what is good. The evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. This idea of brings out, it spurts out. The idea just kind of comes out. It's good or evil, according to the, to the supply, to the, to the treasure house of your heart. Whatever you have within, it just it spurts out. This is a universal principle, by the way. This is not unique to this circumstance. This is a universal principle, and that is that, a, that a, every person's house is a, is a storehouse, and your words reveal what you have stored within. Let me say it again. Every, everybody, every person's house is a, is a storehouse. And, and our words, your words, they, they show what you keep there. Even, even words that are, that are lightly spoken, without a lot, of, a lot of thought ahead of time, they just sort of come out, right? They just kind of, out they come. They reveal what lies within. In fact, they're, a, they're actually a, a more accurate measure of what lies within. Than, than long and considered and thoughtful speech. Because when it's long, considered, and thoughtful, the opportunity for hypocrisy and duplicity is great. Right? I'm not going to tell you what I'm really thinking. I, you know, let me figure out a way to say this that's a little nicer. I'm going to gild the lily here. But when it just out, it comes. You know, it's, then, then the people have the nerve to say, well, that wasn't really me. Are you kidding me? That's exactly who you are. That's exactly who I am. So what comes out in the heat of the moment, that's what's there. Why did you say that I do it by the power of the evil one? Because you are evil in your hearts. You are evil. You accuse me of of being in league with, with the devil. It is you. It is your father who is Satan, who was a liar from the beginning. That's your father, not mine. He goes on to complete his, his explanation here by issuing a further warning. And, you know, you just kind of, even in the midst of this, and it's really hard to try to, to feel the emotion of that moment, to be sure. The confrontation must have been intense. But even in the midst of it, there, there are repeated warnings. There is grace flowing here. They're, they're right on the edge. When this is over, it's going to be too late. Verse 36, but I, but I tell you 
that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. He's speaking here again to the crowd, I think. He's he's addressing the Pharisees, but, but through the Pharisees, beyond the Pharisees, to the crowds. These guys, they've made up their mind. They've voiced it. You are in the balance. Your soul is in the balance. What will you do? Now, Jesus is not giving a, you know, a kind of a general statement here. It can be lifted out of context. You know, when you get to heaven, there's going to be a video. First thing you've got to endure is a video of your life. Right? Every, every kind of stupid, sinful thing you've ever said or thought, you know, sit there and roll the film, Right? That's not what he's talking about. He's addressing here, he's still addressing the sin of blasphemy. He's still addressing here the the sin of the blasphemy of the Spirit, the Holy One. This is the context. He is warning them that that careless words, that is that Jesus' work is empowered by the Spirit, will result in your condemnation. This is not just a throwaway explanation. This is, the, this is the fulcrum of your life. Crowds, you're, you're, you're evaluating me. Or at least you think you are, verse 23. But, but the reality is that your words are evaluating you. Your words are evaluating you. You will, you will be justified. That is, you will be proved righteous by what you say about me. You're either my follower or you're not. Accusation. Refutation. Condemnation. Explanation. But before we leave, let me... Let me give you a fifth, a fifth word. I think, I think an important word for us as we sort of close this out. My fifth word is hope. Hope. In the midst of the darkness, hope. It's found here um, really in verse 31. I mean, it, w- it would be easy to pass over this. This is a heavy, heavy passage. And as you're reading through it and, you know, you're improperly interpreting it as you go and and the context is dragging you along and it would be easy to just sort of read over verse 31 and, and, you know, we're focusing on the blasphemy of the Spirit and so forth. But there is a ray of gospel hope here in verse 31 that is so powerful. I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people. Stop right there. There is forgiveness, beloved. There is forgiveness for any sin. There is forgiveness for any blasphemy of God. But this one alone. And this one was historically bound. It cannot be committed today. It does not belong to our generation. It belonged to that generation. And so there is incredible gospel hope here. Listen. It doesn't matter what you have done. 
It does not matter what you, what you have said about God or to God. It doesn't matter how you have, how you have lived your life. God will forgive you if you will come to him in repentance and faith, trusting in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. And that all of your blasphemies, all of your sin, all of your wickedness, all of your unbelief, punished on his cross. Any sin, any blasphemy, there is nothing that you have ever done that can keep you from God. My friends, that is the good news, right? It is the gospel hope. It's what fills this room with sinners saved by grace. When you think about all the sin, all the blasphemies, all that, that you have done, how I thank God, how I thank God that in Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 7. Beloved, at the cross of Christ, there is mercy, grace upon grace upon grace. Will you come to the cross today? Will you repent of your sin and receive forgiveness through the Lord Jesus Christ? I beg you. Let's pray. Our Father, we are a broken people, twisted and bent, defiled by sin. Our minds are a cesspool. Our hearts are frequently hard to you and to your word. We have done things that if we were known, we would, the shame would cause us to cower. We've thought things, said things. Our unbelief has manifested itself in a million different ways. We confess we deserve nothing but judgment. And yet, our Father, you offer us not judgment, but redemption, salvation that an enemy of yours could become your child. That we could know the love of God that passes all understanding. That through the Lord Jesus Christ, your son, whom you sent, who lived a perfect life and, and fulfilled the law at every aspect where we could not, and willingly offered himself in our place, that all of the wrath Righteous wrath that our sin deserves was poured out on him. He drank the cup to the last drop. 
He left nothing for us. He consumed it all. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He cried. And then in the end, he said, it is finished. And he yielded up his spirit. Father, the gift is ours if we will but receive it. Oh, Lord, may you work in our hearts even today to receive the gift of life. Perhaps for the first time for someone in this room, they would come to know life everlasting through Jesus Christ. And for us, our Father, who who know him and yet have failed him so often, even this week, even this day, Let us flee back to the cross. For it is there at the cross, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. May you help us believe. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery of which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested, and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations, leading to obedience of faith, to the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, be the glory forever. Amen. Go in peace, beloved.